Good morning. Good to see all of you here. Um, yes, as Pastor Tim said, we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus 19 and, and the holiness of God. Um, I'm coming off of a, a week of uh, a vacation, I guess you can call it. Some of you maybe, maybe did that. I don't know how you spent your uh, fourth, but uh, every year, uh, actually for the last 10 years, I go to this uh, a Bible family camp uh, with my my wife's side of the family, and it's uh, a fun treat. Uh, I used to not like it as much as I do now. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you kind of get dressed up for, for chapel uh, twice, twice a day, hour and a half, twice a day. Uh, you do these things, and, and uh, you know, you swim with your T-shirt on and all these different things. You know, a little conservative, but it was okay, right? I, I've, learned, I've learned to love it. I really have. Um, uh, now that I've got a son, you know, we, we have a lot of activities and things that we do. My wife's uncle brings his his motorboat, and we, you know, tube and ski. I tried to ski. It was more like falling with style, if anything, but it's, it's really is a lot of fun to do this. Well, uh, there's also these uh, every day, so you have breakfast, and then you, then you have uh, family devotions and uh, together as a family, and so it's not just my family, my wife and my son, but it's my in-laws, and, and my wife has uh, three sisters, and so all of our families, we all get together, and, and we have family devos. Well, I kind of paved the path, because 10 years ago, when I was just dating my wife, I, I showed up for a few days of, of family camp, and uh, one of the um, relatives didn't like that. And uh, so when, when it was time to break up for family devos, she stood in the door and said, uh, this is family devos. And I was like, all right, I will see you later. Um, things have come a long way. You know, we had a, a, new, a new boyfriend that was there this year, and he was welcomed on into family devos, so you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, really is a lot of fun. But, but one of the topics that we talked about was holiness. And, and it was fun because I was, I was trying my best at a camp with no internet to, to study this week. And at the same time, um, just be reminded of God's holiness. And as we're talking, um, you know, in a forced uh, devo time, uh, which I normally don't get a whole lot out of forced devos, but it was, it was good. And was able to glean from the wisdom of my, my father-in-law, who's been a pastor for 35 years and, and is going to be retiring here shortly. And, and uh, it was really, really good time. And so I'm going to be looking at the holiness of God. And as Pastor Tim said, we're going to be in Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 19. This is our 24th week here in Exodus. But something's about to change. The scenery of where Exodus has been and where it's going is kind of building up to what's about to happen this week. And then we're going to find out what's going to happen for a long time afterwards. So let's go ahead and dig into this. So Exodus chapter 19, the holiness of God. I need to give a little bit of a you know, caveat or something. I, those of you may know this about me, but I teach uh, systematic theology in our Leadership Development Institute. And if uh, you know, the interns are in here, this is kind of one of my, um, I don't know what you call it. It's not a pet peeve. Uh, that seems a little negative. It's not a negative thing. Maybe high horse. It's just my... My, my thing, uh, I'm probably wrong because I'm the only theologian, I'm not a theologian, I'm the only, whatever, someone who studies the Bible, I think I'm the only one who has this position, so I'm not like, you know, I'm going to, you know, die on this horse or anything, die on this hill, that's what I'm looking for. Um, but when it comes to God's holiness, this is something that I've studied a lot, this is something that every single year when we get to a couple chapters in our systematic theology book, uh, that we talk about the attributes of God. And what are the attributes of God? There are things like his omnipotence and his omniscience and, and his omnipresence and, and his wisdom and his love and his mercy. It's everything about God that makes God God, basically. 
And some of these attributes are communicable, meaning that God can share those with us. So we as human beings can demonstrate mercy and love and justice, but I can't be omnipresent. I can't be everywhere at once. So those are incommunicable attributes. Those are things that I can't do. Then I'm throwing out a lot of weird big words. I've got a point to this, though. When we get to holiness, my, my high horse is that I disagree with a lot of people that say holiness is an attribute of God. And I remember David Roos and I, we were in LDI together, and I remember bringing this up, and he just kind of laughed it off like you're an idiot. But I, there's a point to this, that when we look at the attributes of God, God's, God's mercy and his love, that, that God's love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy love. His spirit is even Holy Spirit. That there's only one word that is described to God, as prescribed to God three times, and that is holy, holy, holy. Not merciful, merciful, merciful. God cannot withhold his holiness, but he can withhold mercy. He can withhold love. God can't stop being holy. And so what is it? What does holy mean? I don't know. There's just no way to possibly describe holiness. It is, it is a word that describes God in language that we just don't have words for. I don't have language for it. And so there's a, a Scottish pastor and theologian who said that if we were to describe God's purity in our human language, the only way that I could describe it would be in terms of a dingy gray. I just, we, we, we lack the ability to talk about holiness. And some people might say, yeah, it means separate, which is true. It means uh, different and pure and clean, yes, which is true, but it's so much more. And the only way that we can even begin to get a glimpse of what holy means is by reading the scriptures and what God does and how he shows up. Um, I believe that it's a little bit different than an attribute also in the sense that it, the scriptures say that God's name is holy. But it's not a, uh, an adjective here when it says God's name is holy. It's, it's a noun, his, his actual name. It's like uh, Miles, Miles' name. Can I use your name? Is that all right? Miles, <laughs> too late. Uh, like, right, it'd be like, it's not like saying Miles' name is unique. It would be like saying Mr. Trump's name is Miles, right? It's, it's, it's his name. His name is holy. But I can just refer to him as holy. Hallowed be thy name is what Jesus taught us to pray. So, that is where we're headed today, and we're going to look at this in Exodus chapter 19. Now, I'm going to start off just kind of um, giving these kind of three points, something that we're going to see in this passage, we're going to look at and be reminded of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and then we're going to see the holiness of God come through and just be on magnificent display in this passage and then the response of the people and the holiness of God's people. I do apologize, those of you who are like English majors or just like outlines, <laughs> my outlines are terrible. Uh, I know that. I'm just putting stuff on a piece of paper just so you can kind of follow along. Uh, I know how outlines are supposed to look. Mine don't do that, uh, and I'm okay with that. Um, okay, we're going to look at this mountain of God. This is a really big deal. This mountain, it just seems like, okay, Israel's traveling, they've, they've finally been set free from, from slavery, and they've been coming down, and now they're, they're coming to this mountain of God, Mount Sinai. But this is incredibly significant, especially to Moses. If we go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, this is at the burning bush. So Moses is almost 80 years old, he's out tending the flocks of, of his father-in-law, Jethro, 
And he's out there, and what happens? He sees this, this bush on fire that's not burning, and it calls out to him, Moses. And he comes to it, and he has to remove his sandals because why? He's on holy ground. There's something about the presence of God that makes it holy. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God makes this promise with Moses that when you come back here with my people, then you're gonna know. And that's exactly what happens. God makes his promise, and then God keeps his promise. And we see this now in the first two verses. It says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, so three months, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses is saying, this, this promise that God made to me has been kept, that his people have been freed from slavery. And now here we are to worship Yahweh at this mountain. This is setting the stage here. We've gone 24 weeks to cover 18 chapters. Moses, however, is now going to spend the next 59 chapters discussing what happens the next year at the base of this mountain. This is a massive undertaking that happens here where God shows up. He goes on display to his people, and he says, this is my law. And Moses takes 59 chapters. We're not going to do 59. We're, gonna go, we're not going all the way to Deuteronomy. But in the middle of Deuteronomy, finally, they move on. So this is a really big deal at the base of this mountain. Um, on, the, on the camp theme, I was, I was thinking this this morning. I, I grew up, those of you who know me, a, a pretty conservative, uh, fundamentalist Baptist, if you want to, uh, well, that is what it was. Um, and uh, really conservative, you know, shaved twice a day because Jesus didn't have a beard, so why would you, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I believe that, I did. <laughs> um, uh, anyways, I was at this camp, okay? It was a really, really conservative camp, and uh, it was my senior year in high school, and I won't name the name, but it was out in, uh, in North Carolina, up in the Appalachian Mountains, and beautiful campsite. And we were, um, the, the, the senior men and women, girls, we, in high school, here I'm talking about, we, we went for this hike in the mountains, and the counselors were with us. And we're thinking we're going to go tubing, uh, you know, intertubing down a river or something and just going to enjoy the day. Um, no, that wasn't what happened. All of a sudden, the, 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 the men counselors pop up out of the bushes wearing, you know, fatigues and camouflage and their faces are painted. And they're like, hey, this is back in, you know, 2003, whenever it was. And, and um, they say, man, President Bush needs our help. Uh, Saddam Hussein is somewhere in these mountains and we got to find him. <laughs> right? So, okay. Um, I don't think you're telling the truth. Just going to be honest here. Okay, and so what happens? They say, okay, all the men, you know, you, all the guys, you got to follow us. And they're like making us do push-ups and all this stuff. I can't, I can't stop laughing, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. There's, there's a few of us other guys that are just like, okay, hey, Tom, you're my counselor. I know it's you. You're not really in the army, you know, like... 
I know this is fake, and they would just get in her faces and like screaming like it was boot camp. Oh, yeah, silver slip laughing, get down and give me 15. And it's just like, I can't stop laughing, right? This is so ridiculous, right? Pick up that big rock, hold it up. No, this is so stupid. <laughs> and then I remember this guy, Dan was his name, and we're in the river, and he's making me do push-ups, and I'm just, now I'm getting mad, right? Now I'm just like, all right, this is, I'm, get, I'm getting pretty upset now. And Dan's in my face, and he's standing over me on this rock in the river, and he goes, right, he's trying to preach at me or something, I don't know what he was doing, but he goes, silver, pride comes before a, and as soon as he was about to say fall, he just whoop, straight up, <laughs> so, like slams his tailbone on a rock, like so hard, like knocks the wind out of him, right? He's doing the whole like, Ooh, right? And I'm laughing, now everyone's laughing, and it's a good time. I am not a fan of, of arbitrarily like doing anything, right? Just, just, for, just because we're gonna do this, especially when, I ha when it's like physical, like, hey, we're just gonna make you do push-ups. Why? Because it's funny. No, it's not, right? <laughs> but, but, but God kind of does this to Moses here, right? God is gonna go to Moses and he's gonna say, you're gonna go up and down this mountain more than you'd like. <laughs> and it's gonna seem very arbitrary. It's gonna seem like you're just gonna do this because I'm telling you to do this. But God has a plan and he has a reason for it. So we're going to read through this, um, this whole passage, and it was a, actually a very difficult passage, and, and a lot of the commentaries that I was reading, they, they're thinking, it, it gets kind of cloudy as far as the timeline and, and what's going on. Did he go up the mountain back and forth four times? Was it three times? It's kind of hard to understand. Some language is a little difficult, and, and we can get caught up in the details, but every commentary I read kind of used that language of let's not get focused so much on the tree in front of us of how many times did Moses go up and down the mountain and, not, and, and lose, lose view of the forest, right? So let's look at that forest. Let's look at God showing up and doing something incredible in front of Moses and his people. And so he's going to be going up and down this, this mountain over and over again, but for a reason. So he says this, Yahweh says this to them, keep my covenant. So Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right, there's, there's significance of what he's saying. He's, he's saying, yeah, I brought you out of slavery from Egypt. You crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh has been drowned. right? Remember Pastor Drew's sermon? He's been destroyed in all the Egyptian armies, and you've been crossed over the Red Sea into freedom, and so you've been redeemed. You've been set free. Why? Because of anything you did? No, because I brought you out myself. You didn't earn any bit of that redemption. I saved you. And they go out in the wilderness, and they need water, and they need food, and God provides water and manna and quail, and then water again. And then the Amalekites fight, and God defends them and fights on their behalf because they're his people, and, and nobody is going to thwart God's plan of redemption. So he says, you've seen what I have done. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. What covenant is he talking about? Um, there are several covenants in the Old Testament um, and so some people will talk about, is this the Mosaic Covenant, the, the law? And, and a lot of commentaries say no, because the, that hasn't been written yet. And they would say that he's, he's specifically drawing on the, on the Abrahamic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, because he says the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel, right? This is something that's looking back. And if you keep my covenant, how do they keep their covenant? What was the covenant? 
So I want to look at the promise that was made with Abraham. This is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. It says, Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. He says this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And so now he's calling on that again, this covenant. If you keep my covenant, if you be a blessing to people around you, I will bless you. And then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I have chosen you. He says this, although the whole earth is mine, I own everything and everybody, but I've chosen you, Israel, even though you didn't earn it. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is interesting because the priesthood hasn't been established yet. We haven't gotten to the book of Leviticus. It hasn't happened. So what priest is he talking about? Israelites would have known what a priest was. They just came out of slavery from Egypt. They would have seen priests and priestess uh, worshiping their false gods. And they said, this is, it's not just going to be one individual who gets the, the privilege of, of talking to God. Something's about to happen where every single one of you is going to see God in his power and his majesty and his holiness. And you are to be a holy nation, a separate nation. Something's going to be different about you, but it's going to be different. That should be attractive. Unlike what Tim said, beating people over the head with our false morality. So he says this, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says this, so Moses went back, right? So Moses goes up and down. Moses goes back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that Yahweh had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything that Yahweh has said. Spoiler alert, no they're not, <laughs> right? Bad things are going to happen, they don't do that. So Moses brought their answer back to Yahweh, okay, so back up the mountain. And Yahweh said to Moses, this is what he says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. We've seen clouds, the pillar of the cloud that, that leads Israel through the, through the, through the desert, We've seen his, his glory show up in the cloud when the, when the man and the quail were going to come. I'm going to show up to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking. They're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told Yahweh what the people had said. What I love about this passage, what I love about what Yahweh does here is he doesn't leave his people guessing on how to worship him. Like I said, he's going to spend 59 chapters outlining in very detailed fashion how to worship God. False gods can't do that. They don't talk. They have throats but can't speak. They have nostrils but can't breathe. They have ears but can't hear. They're dead. And everyone who worships them is like them. That's a psalm. I forget which one. Yahweh shows up and says, this is how you're to worship me. This is how I can cover your sins with the sacrifice of an animal. Something changes here when God 
shows up. I love here what Peter N. says. He says, Israel will soon be privy to the private conversation Moses had with God in chapter 3. That's the burning bush. So now Israel is going to be in on this conversation. It is important to God that Israel learn to trust Moses, their mediator. He, Moses, is the link between God's own glory, which no one may gaze upon, and the people he has come to deliver. So now God shows up. And he says this, Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people, <laughs> go, go, go back down the mountain again, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. But put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Or don't even touch the mountain. God's at the top of the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain. And he says this, whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Whoa, why is that? Because he's holy. He's ineffable, unapproachable light. But God comes down from his dwelling place to dwell with man. And he shows up to be their God. And he wants Israel to be his people. And he says, but you can't come close. So much so that if someone does, they are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. That if somebody touches the mountain that if they somehow transfer the holiness and the glory of God from the mountain to you, you too need to die. So in order to execute this person, you're going to do it at a distance. This is intense. God is not to be trifled with when it comes to his holiness. He says this, no person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. We just sang when that trump will sound and I will be able to stand in the presence of God here, this trumpet will sound, this ram's horn will sound and then they can approach God. There's a lot of theology in our hymns. I wanna go to Isaiah chapter six. This is one of the uh, most beautiful passages when it comes to the holiness of God. And so we've just got a glimpse at this mountain of the holiness of God and what it means that if I even just touch a, a, a rock that's part of this mountain that I need to be killed? Isaiah chapter six, one through five, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah, if you don't know anything about him, he, was, he reigned for over 50 years. It's hard for us as, a, as Americans to even fathom what it would be like to have a, a, a president that would, that would rule for, for 50 years, right? But this is, so it's 50 years and it's, it was stable. It was a good time for Israel under the time of King Uzziah, and he dies. So now things are, are all up in the tipsy-turb, topsy-whatever I'm trying to say. <laughs> Some, it's bad now, right? And Isaiah, the prophet, says, I saw the Lord. He has this vision. I saw the Lord high and exalted. Um, as I was reading this back in the day uh, in, in normal Illinois when I was teaching Bible, I was talking with Caitlin. She was, uh, she's now goes to church here. She's a student at the U going into her senior year. And, and uh, I taught her when she was in seventh grade uh, at, this, at this school, uh, junior high Bible. And we were going over the holiness of God. 
And I was teaching this passage, and there was this kid, and I'm not going to say his name, but um, he used to wear like a, a, a blue um, cookie monster hat all the time. And drove me nuts. He was in eighth grade. And uh, I'm going over this passage, and I'm, and I'm reading this, and I'm talking about just the, the terror and fear to approach a holy God. And I'm super intense, right? And I'm reading this passage, and it says, And I saw the Lord high and exalted, and this kid goes, God's high. Oh. I'm pretty sure he's like a hermit in the woods still waiting for the wrath of God to come down. I mean, I scared him to death. Uh, I wish I could go back and, and not do that to the kid, but I did. Uh, it's too late. Um, But the holiness of God is something to be reverenced. It's awe-inspiring. I saw the Lord high, lifted up, exalted, and he's seated on a throne. God is not in heaven pacing around. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen to my people? When are they going to stop suffering? He's seated. And above him were seraphim, these angelic creatures, each with six wings. And with two wings, they, they cover their faces to, to cover their, they can't even, their eyes, so they can't even see the holiness of God. Even these sinless creatures cannot look at God the Father because of his holiness. And with two feet, they, two, two other wings, they cover their feet to cover their creatureliness in the presence of God. And with two, they're flying and they're calling to one another. I love this. You got to think from, from when this was penned, from eternity past to eternity future, these beings are going to be flying over the throne room of God, saying, shouting out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then this one's like, Ah, oh, man, you got nothing. Listen to this. Holy, holy, holy. And this just goes on and on and on. And we can learn something from this. We can learn that God likes it loud, all right, amen? He likes it loud, and when there's meaning behind repetition, it's glorifying to God. You know, sometimes we sing songs, like, how many times are we going to sing, I'm washed in his blood, I'm washed in... If you mean it and your heart is into it, it brings him honor and glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This cloud, you can't see him. And Isaiah says, woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, have, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. That is the holiness of God. I can't even be in your presence. I can't even look at you. I should die. So, back to Exodus. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. He's you need to be set apart. Wash your clothes. And he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day and abstain from sexual relations. Um, the whole abstain from, from sex thing, um, it, it seems kind of like a shock. Like, why, why is that here? And the whole point is, from what I was reading, was just Moses saying, you need to be ready. Be prepared. Always be on the ready because Yahweh is going to come down and you need to be ready. You're going to set yourselves apart. You're going to wash your, yourself. You're going to wash your clothes. 
Israel took this so seriously that uh, after the Babylonian captivity in 580-ish uh, uh, B.C., um, they, they, they get exiled. They're kicked out of their own land. And then they, when they finally get back, they, they find the Torah. They find what we're reading. And, they, and they, the scribes start writing all the words and start writing down all the, all, the, all the scriptures of the Torah meticulously. And they took the holiness of God so intensely that every time they would write, write the word Yahweh in scripture, they would clean their pen, get the ink off, get a new, not a new pen, but they would clean their pen, and then they would go and they would take a bath. All right, so if you're writing and you're copying the book of Exodus, the word Yahweh is in there a lot. Right? And these guys took a lot of baths. Why? Because they respected the holiness of God and what he called his people to do, to be separate. Something is different about God's people. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. This is the ram's horn, right? Think of uh, the Vikings, right? The Whatever that horn, right? It's a, a war cry, right? This isn't just like a brassy, tinny trumpet. This is, a, this is a blast from a ram's horn. And everyone in the camp trembled. That's what happens when sinful beings come into the presence of a holy God. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Right, imagine you're in the camp and you see this fireball resting on top of this mountain, this ram's horn getting louder and louder, and Moses is like, all right, let's go. It's like, nah, I think I'm good where I'm at. I can see just fine. And Moses leads the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Right? I don't want to stand at the foot, because I know what you just said. If we touch it, we're dead, so I'm going to stay back. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of this ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. I want to take a little hiatus here and move forward a little bit. This tripartite, it's just a fancy word. I don't know what it means, but it means there's three levels to something, okay? Um, it, was one of the com it was in the commentary. I just copied it and made, you know, I was, was going to just look smart, but I don't know what it means. It's just three levels of something, okay? This tripartite structure of the tabernacle. We're not to the tabernacle, but there's something that happens here now in Exodus that points forward to the tabernacle. That's what it says. Yahweh descended on the top of the mountain and called Moses to the top of the mountain. All right, so here Moses coming back up again. So Moses went up, and Yahweh said to him, go back down. Go back down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see Yahweh, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach Yahweh must consecrate themselves, or Yahweh will break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, yeah, I just, I just did that. Right? The, well, the people cannot come up to the mount, mountain, uh, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And Yahweh replied, go down, <laughs> right? He said, I just told you to do something, but there's a reason for it. He said, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through and come up to Yahweh, or he will break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. 
This is a, an image, uh, artist rendition of, of the tabernacle, which is going to travel with the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. And, and we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, um, but I want to just, just describe this a little bit. You have the, that priest is standing outside. That's, that is uh, uh, the court where, where anybody who is a Jew uh, was an Israelite, could, could be around the tent. If you were a Gentile, no bueno. You could not be close to that tent unless you were Jewish. Once you go through that first curtain, it's called the holy place. And in there, a priest could go. If you were a priest of the tribe of Levi, you could go into that place. The next place was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in there, only one time a year with the high priest, he was the only person who could go in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And God's glory, the Shekinah glory, this little cloud would form over the Ark of the Covenant. All right, now I say that because this is what's happening. In this passage, that the mountain isn't a foreshadow of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is referring back to this moment right here. What does God do? He says Yahweh descends to the top. That's the most holy place. That's the holy of holies. Moses, Yahweh descends to the top of the mountain and, and calls Moses to the top. And so Moses went up, right, this high priest. Moses went up to Yahweh and said to him, go down and warn the people, the people outside of the tabernacle. They cannot come in here because I am here. They will be struck dead. All right, but then when he tells Moses to go back down, he says, Yahweh replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. Aaron is going to be the line, the line of the high priest. So there's significance of why God is telling Moses to do this. And this is imaging what we're going to see in a form of the tabernacle of God dwelling with his people in the camp. But now, here is when God dwells with them, and they're going to hear his voice, and everybody is going to see him. All right, moving on to kind of a little bit more maybe a practical aspect and application, not, not totally, but getting into the New Testament, but I'm going to be in the Old Testament still too, um, is this promise that was made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is now going to be kept. We're going to see the keeping of this promise with Abraham. He says this in Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. Go back and bring those of Israel I have kept. All right, he's talking to Isaiah. Bring them back out of exile. And he says this. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I chose Israel, but remember what I said to Abraham? If I bless you, you will bless those around you. Now, you will bless people. You will be a blessing to the nations. And here God is saying, you will be a light for the Gentiles. But it's not just about one ethne. It's about all people. It always has been. And so then we get to Acts, the New Testament. And Paul says this, or, uh, says this in verse 44. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews, the Israelites, those who were in the in crowd, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on them. All right, Paul, you're, you're not preaching the gospel. You have to be an Israelite to be in. you got to be a son of Abraham to be in. Paul says, oh, no, no, you're reading your Bible wrong. And Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, everybody else. For this is what Yahweh, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Paul now is going to quote Isaiah. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. 
And just like the Israelites, these Gentiles, myself, every single person in here who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, you did nothing to earn salvation. I didn't do anything. God shows grace and mercy and chooses to save me. That's the promise kept with Abraham for all nations. And then we see the holiness of God. I love what Calvin says about this. He says, hence that dread and amazement with which as scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed when they beheld the presence of God. They fall on their feet as dead. And this was kind of a fun aha moment for me, reading Hebrews chapter 12. This should sound extremely familiar. Verse 18, you have not come, he's talking to the church now, he's talking to the believers, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who hear it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's where it was. That was the holiness of God, the ineffable, unapproachable glory and holiness of God. But then Jesus comes, the manifestation of God in the flesh, the perfect image of holiness to us and how we should live and be separate in the world but not of the world. Then this happens, but, but you, all nations, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to what? Thousands upon thousands of angels in fearful assembly, in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, the church of Jesus Christ, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. Again, in fear and trembling? No, joy and grace to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I read this quote earlier, that Moses was the link between his own glory, which no one may gaze upon, and the people he has come to deliver, but Jesus is now that link between God's own glory, which no one may gaze upon, and the people he has come to deliver. That Jesus has come to save all peoples, and we get to, as Paul says, boldly enter into the throne of grace. That I get to go to the throne room of God. In fear? No, in joy. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. We literally just sang this. I, I had to sit down and write the words down. He says, uh, we sang, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That's what Jesus does. He's the link for me to be able to go into the presence of God and say, I am a man of unclean lips. And God says, yes, you are, but you wear the righteousness of my son. Welcome. Do we have a proper view of God's holiness today? This is something I struggled with for a long time. I, I lived in fear of God. Anytime I would sin, anytime I would mess up, I would think God is just gonna lightning bolt me to death. Like I, I lived in this this fear of God over my sin. And as we just read in Hebrews, that my sin, no matter what I do, it cannot separate me from the love of God. 
that God is holy and just, yes, and demands a payment to be made, but Jesus made the payment I couldn't make. And so when we look at the holiness of God, when we look at do I have a proper view of it, I cannot fall out of a right standing with God. But at the same time, I think we can make it a little too trivial. Maybe I don't fear God, but maybe we have the whole, uh, you know, Jesus is a friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Sorry, that's stuck in your head. Don't YouTube that. You'll lose two points in your IQ if you watch that, okay? Do we have, though, a little bit too much of a, of a, a light, fluffy, duffy approach to the creator of the universe? I think of, uh, I, was, I, I thought about this, and I know we've used this before here at Hope, but from the Chronicles of Narnia, when little Lucy asked Mr. Beaver, right, is he safe? Right, is Aslan, is God safe? Mr. Beaver, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is our father. And finally, the holiness of God's people. We see this as a covenant people, that we now are God's covenant people, that he once used a single people group, an ethnic group, that people could join, could become Israelites to be part of that camp. And now, all of a sudden, God shows up and he says, it's not just about an individual ethnic group, it's all peoples. But we can all be a covenant people together. First Peter chapter 2 says this. This should sound familiar. Except he's not just talking about Israelites. He's talking to the Gentile church here, including Israelites. But you, church, you are a chosen people. You are the true Israel, a royal priesthood that we get to boldly enter into the throne of grace. You don't need a priest to do that. A holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare there's something that we're supposed to do to be covenant people, and it's not build walls and, and keep it to ourselves and protect ourselves. We're to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into wonderful light. Once you were not a people Gentile, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Another quote from Peter N. says, but being separate from the world... Other, holy, is never merely so for its own sake. It is never meant to be a display of otherness for no purpose. Rather, as we see in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, which we read, we are to be wholly separate from the world precisely in order to better serve the world. We have been given a wonderful task of going back and invading the world from which we are taken in an effort to bring the good news of the resurrected life to those who are still dead in sin. It's not about being other to looking down, saying, no, you're not like me, I'm a Christian. I'm on the high moral ground here. No, it's going into their world and invading it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To paraphrase Paul's language, we died to sin in order to be effective witnesses for those who are still dead in sin. And I don't witness to people by sharing my morality. We also do this as a holy people. This is something I think that... that uh, everyone struggles with in a sense of I, I, I'm free in Christ. So therefore, I can, I can do what I want and he's gonna forgive me. No. We're called to be a holy people. We are called to fight sin and to kill sin and to put it to death 
so we can be more like Jesus, the truly human one. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners in exile, as an Old Testament language, but you now Gentile, believer, Christian, it's the same thing. You're, you're in this world. As foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This is not, I love what Martin Luther says about this, that if, I, if I'm a Christian and I'm also a cobbler, right, I make shoes, um, if I do that, my job as a Christian is not to put little crosses on my shoe, right, to say, hey, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, here you go. No, it's to make the best shoes that I can possibly make. And so they can look at us and say, something's different. What is it? Closing quote with Peter ends here again. It says, the example we set is not by lauding our morality over others. Saying, yeah, you're not as good as me. God doesn't love you. Not by lauding our morality over others, but by humbly being light and salt to the world. That is, by demonstrating in no uncertain terms, by our words and actions, that we are a different pedigree. We're a holy race. It is, in a manner of speaking, the clearest proof of the existence of God. Not a logical and scintillating exegetical argument. Not forceful rhetoric, but pure, humble, godly lives in the shadow of the cross and the brilliant glow of the resurrection. By living such lives, we show the world that the gospel works, that it changes people. It is not just words or a great idea, a gospel. It's not just words or a great idea. It changes us from the inside out and makes us into creatures who behave, behavior is inexplicable. So in closing, just application. Are you a member of the covenant people of God? Have you bent the knee to King Jesus? Have you said, yes, please, I am a sinner deserving the wrath, the holy wrath of God. I am a sinner who someday will stand before that judge of all the earth, and if I don't have Jesus, my mediator beside me, I'm doomed. So I beg of you, do you believe in Jesus? Secondly, do you have a healthy and holy reverence for God? We just talked about this. Is my, my view of God one that is high and lifted up, but yet I can still come to him and cry, Abba, Father. Healthy and holy reverence for God. And finally, are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you living a double life? Is there something that you do and act and say here at church, but you go home and you have friends or family or roommates? Not interested in that. I'm going to keep my faith to myself, just like the Israelites. I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going to point people to Jesus. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth the same way that it's being done in heaven. In our own hearts, that we would daily depend on you to provide for us, not just the physical needs that we may have of shelter and food and clothing, but our daily dependence to fight sin 
and that we would rely on, on one another to help each other, and that we would follow the example of Christ who now lives in us, and because of his example in the gospel, that we are freed from sin. So God, I pray that we would no longer revert back to our old lives of slavery to sin, but we'd be free in Christ. God, we thank you that you are holy. Thank you that there is no other God like you. So God, will you now hear our prayer as we worship and lift up your voice and your name. It's Christ's most beautiful, precious name that I am even allowed to pray to you directly. Amen.